everyone. It's great to have you here. We're going to be discussing professionalism today and I'll just um, invite everyone to introduce themselves. Hi everyone, I'm Ilya, part of the SLT Time team. I'm sure you probably know that by now if you're watching this. Um, and a speech therapist working in complex needs in Northwest London. My name's Anne, and I'm part of the SLT Time team. That's hard to say. <laughs> the SLT Time team. Um, um, I am a speech language therapist working um, kind of across the board in early years and mainstream and in DLD um, in Northeast London. Debs, would you like to go next? So hi, I'm um, Debs Harding and a speech language therapist by background, um, but I've strayed way off that path, um, spent time in um, multi-professional management and later in education. And throughout all of that, I've had a sort of growing interest in supervision in healthcare. Um, and that was what the focus of my PhD was, which I completed in 2019. So I looked at supervision across the allied health professions. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Um, just a quick intro. I'm Miriam and I work in mainstream schools. Um, so I work in pediatrics and um, I'm going to start off by talking about professionalism and if we could just find out more about um, Debs, about maybe your view of professionalism what do you what do you feel that uh, entails so it's a, it's a huge topic isn't it and i think it's um some it's, we sometimes muddle it up with things like professional identity as well which obviously all part of the mix but for me talking um from my sort of personal having ref, it's been great to be invited to think about it so for me i've been thinking how um, it's about how we use our professional expertise for patient benefit or for public benefit. That's kind of at the, the kind of core of it for me. So it's what we do with what we know um, in respectful, thoughtful, considered ways and being open minded and person centered in the way that we apply our um, professional practice. So for me, that's kind of what I think about when I think about professionalism. Be interested to hear what other people think and how they define it. Like that, um, it, it feels like a very somebody who's done a PhD and has got lots of really good terminology explanation of that, which is great because um, I think when we talk about it amongst ourselves, we just first thing we assume is like, oh, it's just sort of like you said, your identity when you're at work and. Um, that it's much more complex than that because it's a whole sort of ideology that is ingrained to you from when you're studying and then as and it develops as you work and um, it's not just kind of who you choose to be because you're almost shaped to be a particular kind of, of way going through any sort of professional learning route um, so it's nice hearing it in sort of succinct words like like that there's certainly a lot of what we bring to the table isn't there but actually when we're training the focus is on the, the kind of knowledge and skills bit. So it's quite easy, I think, to get um, bogged down in that bit. And I, and I think when we're um, going through our training, because we're so eager to make sure we tick the knowledge and skills boxes, we overlook that a really important part of being professional is how we are 
is knowing what to do with what we know. And that's, that's the bit I think that sometimes we overlook or we take for granted. Maybe we just take it for granted. I don't know what you, what you think. Or we sort of just assimilate it because we go on placement and we're ticking boxes and we mm. see our practice educators or supervisors ticking boxes and doing it right. So you sort of just want to be like that and then you just end up making copy and paste of the same type mm. of professional. Mm. Um, I definitely, especially when I first qualified, tried to replicate a lot of behaviours and um, sort of things that probably I wasn't taught explicitly, but I had sort of absorbed as mm. a student um, and then assumed that this is my professional identity as a speech therapist. Mm. I think even now it's like, so for me, I'm, um, it's my first year in the job and like seeing the way people work around me and like, like how I've kind of absorbed that, absorbed that into my professional identity. And I think it sounds really weird, but I think at the moment I am a bit like, who am I? What do I want to be in the speech and language therapy world? And I think I've been thinking a lot about like, what is my, like, as a professional person, like, what does that actually mean for me? And like, how do I want that to present? to the world and to the people that I work with. I think a lot of it has to do with like the kind of relationship you have with the people around you as a speech therapist and how you interact with them. And I think, yeah, when I think about professionalism, I do think of like that kind of thing and like the relationship that you have to build because it is a different kind of bond. I was doing, um, relate to, I was teaching about relationship today in, um, in a session in my DLD up so that's why I'm like let's think about all the different types of relationships there are but like the professional relationship is like very different in that like you do have a duty of care um even more so than like any other to keep someone safe and I think as a professional that's something that we have to think about as well whilst also maintaining a level of like openness and friendliness and having that side of things as well and I think it's interesting in speech therapy it's like I always say this in like speech therapists are the nicest people and like finding that balance of like friendliness but also professionalism it's like a real mm. I think it's a fine line that I think speech therapists tend to hit like a lot of the time but it's really hard to like define I think it's so interesting you picked that up Anne because when I was doing my research um, I heard people talking about um, a friendly relationship, but not friends. And it's mm. almost like uh, we don't have a word that really captures what that is. Mm. So the closest we can come to is friend. And then that creates all sorts of confusion for us about, like you say, what, where's that line um, mm. between being friendly professional and not overstepping that and then into what, what friend really looks like yeah I was also interested in what you what the two of you had said so far um about how we use the people we're we're training with our practice educators and other professionals that we work with as our sort of um benchmark so we're inspired by them we replicate stuff we see them doing that we like it makes you realize how visible you are professionally that that stuff's being picked up in quite an incidental way but it also is you know the stuff that we think crikey I don't think I would absolutely never want to be like that because not all the examples we see around us are that shiny so it's interesting how we decide how we pick which ones are the kind of professional model we want to go with which is kind of what you were saying Anne about deciding what sort of professional I want to be 
I really like where this discussion has started taking us off to because um, we started with Deb saying that um, professionalism is kind of what you do, like what you do with the knowledge you have. Um, and um, Ilya questioning um, whether it's really, whether it should really be focused on our professional identity um, and and thinking about relationships. So that just shows us how multifaceted this topic of professionalism is. So that also brings us to discuss how um, different cultures have a different view of professionalism and our cultures influence um, how we are as professionals. So I'd like to discuss our next question, which is how does one's, how do you feel one's cultural background shapes their professional identity? And feel free to talk about your own experiences. I think um, this is definitely something that I've been reflecting on a lot more recently um, in terms of like through all the discussions we've been having, but through also discussions I've been having just with other people here and there. And um, uh, it's like not just how does it impact on your your um, sort of professional identity and you in the workplace, but also your relationship to being an employee, being um, within a system, being in healthcare. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I work with a lot of families who, like we all do, who maybe don't listen to advice or um, who might have barriers to accessing services or who, um, for whatever reason, and um, it just, for me, it's often dismissed. Um, it's often just sort of like, oh, you know, this family is, you know, hard to reach or do not attend and this, this, this. And then, but when you delve deeper, a lot of those issues are around um, like migrant families coming and having a system which is really, this is probably really tangential, but it's stuff that I've been thinking about in terms of our whole and my own personal relationship and my family's relationship with working with being a professional, with being in healthcare, is all based on our interactions with it. So now me being on the other side of that system is my interactions with families are, often they're conflicted and confused when they see me on the other side firstly. So then I feel a bit like, oh, do I treat you like somebody from my community or do I treat you as you're my client and I'm, I'm the professional and I'm the expert because I'm not used to being in that position. I'm used to being in that position where you are. And so this whole thing of like, um, not like my cultural, my cultural input is not just in terms of me as a professional, but like everything, all my interactions with my clients and with my system and with like all of that. So I've been thinking about that a lot recently. So obviously it really heavily impacts um, and it's so, so holistic and so big. And there's so many influencing factors that it, to fully understand sort of you within a context myself I'm finding to find within myself within a context really difficult I don't even know where to begin was trying to identify mm. um and define sort of where I stand in all of this so it's really complex who's going next <laughs> mm. 
I would, what I'm thinking is um, stuff that I, he I heard again in, in the research I did and subsequently when I talked to pr um, practitioners, you know, we don't leave um, personal us at the door. You know, we might even get a uniform on when we go into work, some of us, but that doesn't mean we leave personal us at the door. So what we, what influences and uh, inform us when we referral, when we are seeing how we're going to navigate a particular practice situation is obviously our knowledge and our skills, our clinical knowledge and skills and expertise that we bring to the table. Um, our experiences in a, in a professional or in a practice sense, but also our experiences outside of practice. All of that comes with us as well. And also our personal preferences, our beliefs, our values, that's all part of the mix. So it's a kind of really complex synthesis. So when, um, and, and I call that a platform for practice. So your platform for practice is not just, for me, is not just your knowledge and your skills in a, in a professional sense. It's that whole synthesis of you as a person as well. And I, I think when we're looking at a professional um, interaction or a, a clinical scenario or you know, um, a clinical encounter, we're foregrounding and backgrounding different things in that platform for practice according to what's in front of us. And as we get, as we get more experienced professionally, potentially we get more adept at which ones to bring to the foreground in a particular interaction and which to kind of um, pay attention to not letting them dominate so much. So sometimes, and, and Ilya's given us a really, some really nice kind of context about that, sometimes the stuff that is about you personally and your life outside of practice is stuff you really foreground and is really helpful and useful. But there might be other times when you're just that you're just paying attention to that a bit more and thinking, you know, what's the right thing to influence how this interaction, this relationship, this practice relationship goes for. So it's always this really um, sophisticated balancing of those different parts of us professionally and personally that comes into the practice into encounter I don't know if that's making any sense yeah definitely yeah um, so I recently so my um, experience of um, how culture shapes my professional identity I recently realized how much just how much it does um, I was having a discussion with somebody who described uh, their experience of growing up in a in an Irish an Irish um, upbringing, Irish background, and um, she said that because she had been used to always um, having to in her culture, she said she's used to always having to prove her her way if she wants others to listen to her. Then when she was working with clients, she started to try to kind of prove that her way is the right way to go. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, so then I reflected on my experience um, as well. And I realized that for me, I always have kind of 
grown up with this idea that um, the elder is to be respected and they are always right. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I would kind of put too much on the, the supervisor or the older person in the situation. Um, so I realized that it's really important to reflect on um, our, our, our views, our values, and on how they um, influence our practice. Yeah, the, the age thing I really relate to. I've got a huge age complex and it, it's like at work often like, so I work a lot with teachers and in that context, I am that specialist in terms of their speech and language and communication needs. But if there is a teacher who's much elder than me, I feel like a child in that room. Like I can't say anything. I feel really awkward. And I've been really aware of that recently as well. Um, particularly actually if they're um, somebody from like black and ethnic minority background as well, more particularly, I don't know. I feel sort of like she's my auntie. There's a teacher in particular yeah. I have in mind. And recently I've been like, oh, auntie's going to top me off if I tell her something. I don't know why I've got this weird like hang-ups about um, my age as well. So I really relate to that as well. Like, um, I was just thinking as well in terms of what we mentioned before about um, models and assimilating and like as a student, I think um, it took a while for me to feel like I'm able to shape my professional identity into something based more on my own experiences because like mm. we said in the beginning a lot of my models were um a lot of my practice a lot of my modeling a lot of my professionalism was based on practice educators lecturers um you know stuff that I had um been through as a student um and I didn't for ages all of who main I think all of my practice educators were from white English backgrounds um so there wasn't room for my culture within that. Uh, I wanted to be like them because they're the experienced speech therapists, they know what they're doing. And like, like we said before, that they're ticking the boxes. So like adding extra or, or inputting anything which is different to that felt like it was wrong. And um, only in the last like, you know, six months or something did I, did I really, and with all this like stuff that the conversations that I've been having, have, that we've been having, have I felt like, oh, actually it brings more to the table. So like feeling more confident in it. Mm. Um, but I can imagine a lot of students not, not being there yet. I, that's why I think the platform for practice ideas is quite helpful because those educators, in essence, you're describing that they're ticking some of the boxes, but not all of the boxes, not all the same boxes as you. And that's okay. You know, if, if I took a whole room full of band five, speech and language therapists there'd be lots of stuff in their platform for practice which would be similar you know lots of knowledge and skills and clinical experience that would be similar but they're all going to bring something slightly different and they're all going to um, bring slightly different enrichments to their to their clinical practice um, because they're all different people with different experiences and backgrounds but that's also the thing that then we all always have to pay attention to just as much as we pay attention to am I picking the right assessment here yeah. or am I picking the right um, clinical intervention it's all those things that we need to be paying attention to because it's the mix of those but maybe what you're saying is having um, permission to foreground some of that other stuff yeah I don't know is that over interpreting it 
no i think it that's exactly it but that permission is given with the like space to i think mm -hmm. if i as a student not against any of my practice educators because it is difficult they've got so much other things to fit in that you need to be doing the actual clinical stuff but mm -hmm. i think being given a space to um bring more of myself into my learning into my training would have been really valuable and i don't think there was there was at that time emphasis i think that it's growing and i, I mm -hmm. think that um there is a lot more onus now on practice educators being actively um supporting that kind of um development but i think even just a you know um you're going to go plan a session this is your task for this placement um have a lot of flexibility and freedom in that and and you know don't you don't have to use the resources in my room bring me bring me and put together whatever you want based on whatever drawing from whatever you want and you feel comfortable and let's talk about it let's talk about where you got these ideas from why you think it this is appropriate in this situation i know that's overwhelming as a student so it's probably easier said than done because i'm sure if somebody gave that space to me as a student i'm like ah. but having that space at least as an option for me to play with i think i wasn't given i love that example because one of my favorite practice educators was like that and it was in like a complex school and i was like terrified and like really stressed because i was like i don't know what to do this is just so overwhelming but then it i learned a lot from it because i was like okay i can actually do this and i can do this this and this and like think of all these different activities and i think when you are given that freedom to kind of be yourself in your approach to things whilst you're learning, you learn so much yeah. because as a student, you are, it is all about like the knowledge and like making sure you've got the scientific stuff, making sure you've got the theory behind everything, but having that like aspect of professionalism, like outside of what you get, like once a week in professional studies is like so important to like kind of build yourself as a person and like as a professional person same professional so much but like just to like build yourself as a person it's so important to have experiences like that so I completely agree because yeah and you learn where to like how much of yourself to put into something like I remember with one of the kids she was Nigerian and I really wanted to like and I'm Nigerian as well and I really wanted to plan this whole like eccentric session on like I can't remember what it I can't remember exactly what it was but I tried to tie in culture to it but it didn't really have anything to do with it but it was more for myself and then my B was like I don't think this is like what we need right now but you're on the right track and I was just like like mate, it was nice to have that exchange and to like make mistakes and to like do that it was really interesting and like opened my eyes up a lot so um yeah great but you know what's great about that is that um is that that's really modeling and feeling and experiencing the uncertainty we all continue to feel as practitioners so when i was talking to people from my research it didn't matter if people have been um, qualified you know six months or 30 years what i heard them talking about so i i was asking them about supervision and i got about two-thirds of the way through my research and i thought i think i'm doing this all wrong because no one's talking about supervision everyone's talking about uncertainty how am i doing is it okay to be like this? Do I look like a band six physiotherapist, speech therapist? Is this what I'm, I'm supposed to look like? Is this what you expect me to look like? Yeah. And people were concerned about that all the way through their career. But for some reason, we have got ourselves into a position where we feel our professional veneer must always be shiny. Yeah. 
mm. and we must always and we must always kind of look like some sort of clone of one another yeah. professionally and it's when you know those chips or those all all those personal things come you know that's those things create uncertainty for us for you so your educator was doing some great stuff there by giving you the space to feel that uncertainty to know that that's part of being a practitioner and to pay attention to it so that you're you're thinking is it okay to feel this uncertain is there a way to resolve this uncertainty is there a more certain way to practice so I love that, that, that you had that opportunity to do that experimenting because practice is a lot about experimenting. Mm. The professionalism for me is paying attention to the extent of that experiment and the extent to which, so this is what it sounds like your practice educator said back to you, your, you know, is this the right experiment to be having with the person, the family, the patient in front of me? Mm. So how much of me do I bring now and how do, how do I balance that? All that? And that's incredibly sophisticated stuff, isn't it, to get mm. right? Yeah. I think as well, like, what your practitioner did was amazing for all those reasons. Um, but I can imagine a lot of students being overwhelmed by it. Mm. And the reason is because I think as people from ethnic minority backgrounds, we cannot run away from that level of self-reflection and, and identification of our position in everything, right? So we have that. We are constantly reflecting on ourselves. What are we like? What's our, what are our personalities? What are this? Like, it's just ingrained in us because we're so othered that you have to know why and why are we minoritized? Why is this? And, you know, you can't run away from it. And I think for people who are like, um, from white middle-class backgrounds or they it's not something that is in the forefront of their daily reflecting mm. so then given being given that space would just be like overwhelming and and for me it's those people who have not had the opportunities to reflect at that level and who have also um not been allowed to understand other perspectives and being given opportunities to sort of broaden their understanding of lived experiences and all that who need to develop that and and I think there is space within our training for that like you said we have professionalism modules within mm. the course I don't think this type of things are really touched on like um the root of really being able to practice in a way in which you are being culturally sensitive or um allowing um bringing yourself to mm. your practice is having an understanding of what that is so to, to do that we need to learn how to do that and, and how to mm. identify what that self is that you're bringing which yeah. probably is off topic but i just think that there within our professional identity and within our training there is space for that or there should be more so because how can you bring a self that you've not really understood what that means you know everybody and, and we are like like you were saying and like you you were bringing all this stuff and um you related to this client because they were from nigerian background and stuff so automatically we have that like you know mm. you know that that's self that's me i've got that too i can bring that mm. so how do we foster that in every um growing speech therapist i mean mm. they need to, they need to learn this level of reflection and this level of um you know identification within themselves looking in themselves Mm. like understanding themselves and stuff i think it's important as, as therapists 
to have that. So if you were designing that module, what would, what would you like to see in it? I think like a lot of the conversations we've been having recently have been around um, where do you begin on this cultural competency journey and blah, blah, blah. all this kind of stuff. Like, where do you start? Like, it's so overwhelming. And that seems like the root of all of those conversations always end up with just that basic level of acknowledgement. And it's just acknowledging your position in the world and your and why your biases are the way they are why your viewpoints and your opinions are the way they are so just having like even um a lesson where everybody has like um some sort of worksheet which has all these different sectors that all these intersectional different things that make up yourself and then you having time to fill in those boxes what what is your opinion and your view at that level you know my gender my ethnicity my languages my um you know my family break makeup and all of that kind of stuff um identifying at a very basic level what they are for you and then expanding on that um okay so that is what that is for you how does that then impact the way you view things and then how is then that impacting the way that you interact with people and the way that you're interacting with the world and your clients how how are these things in that circle that makes up yourself impacting your practice and, and that's that's something that can be done, I think, in a couple of That's such a good idea. In a couple I'm of months. Like, I want to trade. I think you should trademark that because I will, because I think that's a great idea. Because I think even like, you, you know, in like art therapists and stuff, they have like, they have to be in some sort of therapy or some sort of reflection whilst they're studying. And I think, and I think whilst they're working as well. And I think it's that kind of ongoing like reflection time, um, I think is definitely what's needed um in speech and therapy in line with like what we're talking about in terms of like developing your professional identity and thinking about those aspects like long term as well whilst you are studying um i think is really important i love that idea i'm thinking yeah. of like a little therapy not like i was like a therapy log or something and like the ideas it's like bouncing off like, i love this yeah. i want to pretend that i came up with it on the spot now but it's something i've been thinking about for quite a while actually and this, this is probably even more off topic sorry Mariam, but just tying it into supervision because this is particularly relevant is just i think that how can you utilize and access a supervision space when you've not done that mm. Mm. your supervision space to my understanding correct me if i'm wrong it, it's bringing your whole self to a um to an environment which has been created for you to explore your, your interactions with things professionally and personally to an extent mm -hmm. so that how can you do that when you've not had that basic foundational understanding of what yourself is and i mm -hmm. think more therapists than we think actually don't have that level of ability and then that space becomes probably less effective as it could be well, now you flip the blue touch paper of supervision. I'm going to have to say something about it. Um, this is my this is my hobby horse. I won't. I'll try not to get too carried away. But I think I think you raise something really crucial, which is that in many 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 instances, and not just speech and language therapy, but across a lot of the professions in health, supervision is one of the things that our professional bodies expect us to engage in you know when you sign your hcpc re, you know registration you're saying i understand what supervision is and i engage in it and yet it is the one thing which consistently we under invest in in terms of development 
So people who've, who are tuning into this, who've heard me talk before, go, here she goes. Um, but there's something magical that happens in a not good magical way when people move from a band five post to a band six post, which means that suddenly, somehow, you're permitted, you're empowered to supervise the next person. So let, and let, we could go back now to your whole hierarchy thing and elders and all the rest of it. But essentially that, that's what seems to qualify us to supervise the next person. The fact that we've moved from one band to the other. And yet supervision as we're you know, we, we're talking about a particular area of practice here and a particular set of influences on practice. And we're already in the minutes that we've been talking identifying how nuanced and sophisticated and complex this is this is a skillful thing if we're going to supervise this so my first thing is you know we definitely you're, you know you're absolutely right we need to put more investment into developing supervisor skills knowledge and skills yeah. so that that's my first thing and then my second thing that I'm going to get, and then I will, then I will give way to the floor. Um, but my other thing is that when I was, um, so I said earlier that when I was talking to people about supervision in my research, I, I suddenly had a bit of a panic about my PhD because people weren't talking about supervision. They were talking about uncertainty. And then I started to notice that there were these really helpful behaviors and characteristics that seem to help people one spot their uncertainties but two decide to do something about them and they were important behaviors and characteristics for supervisees and also for supervisors and they're these things that you might have heard me talk about elsewhere as the permeable practitioner so it starts with awareness self-awareness the sorts of things we're talking about here you know I have I have awareness of who I am how I'm practicing I'm noticing my uncertainties, I'm aware of them, but I'm not just aware of myself, I'm aware of and for others. And that's a really crucial aspect of awareness that we need to pay attention to if we are being professional. But it's not enough for us to be aware of stuff and then keep it to ourselves. We have to be awareness sharing, we have to, we have to be bold enough, courageous enough to share those, that awareness with other people. And then I might come to Ilya as my, Ilya might be my supervisor and I come to, or Anne or Mariam and I, and I, you know, I, I, you know, maybe share some clinical thing that I'm concerned about or some interpersonal thing that I'm concerned about in my team. And you might start to give me some really useful feedback. I might go, oh, hold on, don't need your feedback, just need to share it with you. Just need to know, you to know what I'm carrying around here and what I'm dealing with, but I'm, I don't need to have your feedback but it's so important to get that feedback um, and then to be open to alternatives in that feedback that you're going to test out, work out if they work for you. And then ultimately be willing to change, be willing to learn. Now those are important behaviors for supervisees, but if we were helping our supervisors to be more permeable, so recognizing their own limitations as a supervisor, what they do or don't understand or know or connect with in their supervisee is starting to move into a place where we have permission to have those conversations in supervision, provided we're, so there's an important thing here, provided we're 
we're, we're developing a trusted platform. We feel safe and secure in that supervision space because the other thing I heard from people in my research was there's plenty of toxic supervision out there. And when that happens, we tend not to take our uncertainties there. We tend to think, oh, I know, I know I'm not going to feel very supported by this supervisor or very connected to them. I feel like they're on a completely different page to me. So I'm actually going to keep my uncertainties to myself. And that's risky. So you see, you lit the blue touch paper. I had to, had to go with that then. Yeah, it's great. And I think what you said about um, understanding your limitations as a supervisor is exactly again developed through that level of self-awareness like you said so all of these skills are things that are, are so vital to us as therapists and and especially um you know i'm just speaking from my personal experience from being from ethnic minority background my um having a supervisor who understands their limitations in their lack of understanding of my personal experiences and my my upbringing and stuff For sure. um, is imperative to having any sort of space where I can bring problems to because otherwise it just like I've had the same problem with therapies I just recently started trying um, like actual therapy and um, my therapist is from a uh, white middle-class background and I think from the very beginning I had my guards up because I was like you don't really understand my context and I think um, what a good therapist does and any type of therapist, speech therapist like anyone that you speak to in this kind of uh, context should need, need that level of understanding of their limitations and that comes from a, an understanding of self and and your yourself and your experiences and your um, biases so not by implementing this in as students training and all that kind of from a very early on level and like you said investing in it we're building not only effective supervisees but also supervisors for the future and so sure. it's just like for everyone everybody benefits basically what do, what do what others think about that? I'm interested to know. The... I think um, I like agree with you. I think it's, I find it interesting, like being in it and trying to think how do you, because I think there's a lot of possible input for um, people that are training to be speech and language therapists. I think platforms like this are like really helpful for ones that are training. What I find interesting is ones that have been qualified for a while that maybe find it harder to um, maybe put themselves in someone else's shoes. How do you relay that to um, someone like that? I know we probably don't have the answers, but I just, I always think about that and that like sometimes having that, like I've had really good practice educators. I've had practice educators that maybe weren't as like, maybe understanding, let me have that journey as much. And like, how do you kind of prescribe, not prescribe, but like, allow them or teach them to try and have that cultural awakening which sounds really mm. cheesy but like well they're the impermeable yeah. people but yeah. in my book they're the impermeable people this is the way i've always done it this is the way yeah. it should always yeah. been done it should always be done and i think this is back to for me this is back to the professional veneer so they're confusing professionalism with this kind of professional shiny professional veneer thing i must it must always look like this mm. and then they think as a supervisor again we're back to this hierarchy thing i'm more experienced as a supervisor i've been around longer i've got more experience i need to look like i know what i'm doing all the time so i'm going to do what i know as opposed to us giving supervisors permission not to know for them to feel uncertain too and to say 
let's explore the concern let's explore the uncertainty and look at some options so that it's a much more equitable relationship go to our um some results from our poll that we collected from twitter um we asked our followers sorry on instagram about um whether they ever experienced any conflict between their cultural identity and their professional identity. 40% of the um, people who replied said yes, they had experienced some conflict. And 57% said no, they didn't experience conflict um, between their cultural and professional identity. Uh, just to kind of start to think about some um, takeaway points from our discussion, um, just maybe we can uh, think about um, how to make the most of supervision, how to ask help if it's not going well, and maybe even how to recognize when we should ask for help. Oh, that's a, that's a big one. <laughs> uh, I would I would say um, well, I'm going to come back to that idea of the permeability, but also if you you know because so much of this is about trust. I heard people will find alternatives if they don't think that relationship is there. Um, I think it's unrealistic to say we always feel we can call that out um when we're um when we're working with a supervisor but i think the message about us not having enough development as supervisors maybe that's something that we can drop into the mix in our organizations to maybe suggest would it be good to have some training for supervision in our organization or if you have things like journal clubs we tend not to we tend to stick with the clinical. We don't, we don't explore how we support one another professionally, or we don't look at the literature or the research around that. Are there some tiny little experiments we could have that model what better could look like that mean we don't necessarily, if, particularly if we don't feel that courageous enough or um, supported enough, to address those sorts of challenges you've described, Marion, may, maybe one way is to do that by, by encouraging our organization to think about developing its supervisors. I don't know what people think about that. Yeah. I think um, it kind of goes in line with Ilya's point about thinking about like who you are as a person, I think, and um, whether you're a supervisor or a super like visee, I think it's so important to have an idea of who you are and kind of what you want from a particular relationship and what you want for yourself as a practitioner um like I know that I'm quite I think it's this thing of like as like women and minority women have to spend like we spend a lot of our time like questioning ourselves trying to figure out who we are and like so we do I do kind of have an idea of how like my race and my gender and my sexuality and like, everything builds into who I am um but I feel like not everyone gets the chance to explore that as much and I think it's really important to kind of 
like have that space to reflect and actually think about who you are and how that builds into your personality and how that builds into you as a professional how that builds into you as a person how that to intertwine I think it's so important to like stop and figure out what your cultural kind of identity within whatever spheres you are in like what that actually is and I think a lot of people don't get a chance to actually think about that um so I think yeah more space to kind of reflect reflect and think on that I think is really important mm-hmm I think um, in terms of the conflicts that you were saying and, and you said in the poll that whatever, a very high percentage of people felt conflicted in terms of their personal and professional identity, um, uh, cultural and professional identity. I, like, is supervision the space to bring that? Like, I'm not sure. Like, I feel that... Um, would there ever be a supervisor who is equipped enough to have that conversation? Well, that's the aspiration. And mm. I think we should set the, the bar high. I think that it ought to be possible. Yeah. Um, and that's where I, you know, I'm saying that's where we need to invest much more, you know, it needs the same career development currency for me, you know, like uh, as becoming more clinically skilled because it is mm. such an important, it underpins professional and public safety if you don't feel professionally safe with your supervisor supported with your by your supervisor if you don't feel your supervisor has your back as helping that doesn't mean your supervisor won't sometimes challenge you but your supervisor is helping you to explore and find resolutions for your practice uncertainties and that you know could be everything from your clinical through to the impact, you know, this balancing act with our values and everything else that we've talked about. So if we don't, if we don't feel that we have that, so we need to set the bar high on, on developing supervisors. And I am optimistic because I think, you know, if I'm sitting here with a group like you are today with people saying, you've already said before I said it, this should be in the curriculum. We don't get enough development for this. So you are going to be the supervisors of the future who are that bit more permeable and enlightened. Um, so I, do, I think that's, I think it should be, this, because for me, this is just, not just, that's the wrong word, but this is an uncertainty. This is a practice uncertainty that happens to be about the balance between culture and, and professionalism. It could be an uncertainty about something clinical, culture and clinical but it's still a practice uncertainty that has an impact on how safe we feel professionally. So it's still an uncertainty and that's at the core of supervision. The other thing I think, so I'll be interested to see what you think about that, but I think the other thing we don't do enough of in supervision and maybe going back to what Mariam asked at the beginning, you know, how, how do we deal with some of those conflicts in supervision? We don't bring often enough the things that are going well we see supervision as a place to address the stuff that's not going so well so I think we should be feel empowered to say there are some things I know I need to address today in supervision but can I tell you about some stuff that's been going really well and I'm, I'm wondering how I could have more of it professionally or how more of that could be happening so that's a place where we could feel a bit a little bit like a little experiment we could have in supervision as a supervisee to say I actually want to tell you about some stuff that's going well not always telling you about the stuff that I'm concerned about and worried about 
because we yeah. do that in therapy we build on the stuff that's going well it's what we do clinically but it's somehow we forget that when we're building one another professionally I don't know what you think about what you all think about supervision as a space to deal with this stuff. You might think, oh, no, it really isn't. Some, well, I think when you, when you, when you, the, I might not have thought about it, but when you describe it in the way that you did in terms of the core of it being around uncertainty and trust and, and, your, and, and all of that, I think that it makes sense. But I, I guess often a lot of people might not understand it to that extent. Because, like, like yeah. I said, we're not, we're not trained really unless we've gone out and sought that supervision training. Yeah. And too much of supervision is about, you know, supervisors producing a mini me. Yeah. It's not about producing a mini me. It's about, it's about supporting a practitioner to be the safest practitioner they can be yeah. for public benefit. And that mm -hmm. means addressing any uncertainty they bring in an, in an open way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, in terms of the importance of supervision and, and our HCPC and all of that kind of stuff, it's making my head go dig, 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 in terms of all of this work we're doing with equality and cultural competency. Um, honestly, the best best way to go about it is to be investing more into supervision. I never really, um, I don't know, supervision never really felt as, it felt more of like an optional thing, like it was offered to you and then if you take it right. up, it was reflective. But obviously it is something that we are held accountable to and we are expected to do as, as, as practitioners, like you said. But um, I know in the, you know, buzzing of things, often it's the thing that's taken out of your timetable first. Totally, because yeah. there's so, so much focus on productivity and getting through the caseload and, and you might, you know, you might cancel it as a supervisee, your supervisor might cancel it. But actually, it's the one thing you really ought to hang on to. Exactly, mm. exactly. And I, I, honestly, now that having had this discussion, I feel like it's the route to all of the things that we've been talking about. Like, we should just go and um, invest and revolutionise supervision and then maybe we'll solve all of our cultural and community problems. <laughs> well, I'm not going to suggest for one moment it's magic, but I do think it's something we have underexploited. Yeah, definitely. Deb, where can we find out more information? information about your work and uh, the the book you're writing so um so i'm collaborating on a book at the moment with um speech and language therapy colleagues um kathy sparks and sam simpson who are part of in tandem so you can um I'm sure if you google in tandem um you will find their um their great courses in supervision and they very generously invited me to join them as um Part of that collaboration and we really want to collect together um, first-hand stories um, accounts experiences of supervision from across speech and language therapy so predominantly we're looking at it for um, colleagues in speech and language therapy but you know everything from how do we supervise the acquisition of complex skills through to the sort of stuff we've talked about today really so that's um, in early stages and we're, we're starting to gather um, people gather together people who are interested in contributing to that um, book which is how I came across all of you lovely people um, you can find me at Kingston and St George's University of London so you can find me in the Faculty of Health Special Care and Education so if you google Dr Deborah Harding at Kingston you'll find me there 
they're free resources that are the things that I often get asked about from my PhD and that's the permeablepractitioner.com. Great. We will see you all next time. Thank you for listening.